Hi, I'm Oliver Lennon and welcome to the Sendeo podcast, uh, where we delve into all things conversational AI with some of the sharpest brains from some of the most innovative companies in the world of customer experience. These are not a series of interviews, but conversations, um, regular discourse designed to provoke, educate, enlighten the business professionals with insights, learning and guidance on leveraging conversational AI to deliver meaningful CX. Today I'm joined by Mike McTeer, uh, Emirates Professor at Ulster University, now officially retired but probably working more than he's ever done, um, finishing out his book which is coming out in the early part of 2024, exploring conversational AI and the impact of large language models. Conversation with Mike covered many topics from ethics and AI, which is the final two chapters I think he has to write before Christmas, um, to foundational models and the impact that they're going to play, um, both for academia and, uh, sorry, that's open foundational models and the impact they will uh, play for both academia, small industry, um, competing against the amount of investment that's happening with the large language models from the mega vendors. Um, bit of a discussion towards the end as well around uh, QSTAR, which is very much in vogue, and general AI, where that's likely to go. And uh, the one prediction that we have for 2024 is that everything's going to change again. Um, Mike's been in the industry for 20 plus years, in specifically in this space around spoken a dialogue and conversational dialogue and has authored three or four books so really good listen if you're into the, the space which hopefully you are um really good experience from mike um and stays very much up to speed with what's happening in the industry enjoy the listen good morning mike mcteer um emirates professor university of ulster i was going to say jordan's time but that's probably showing my my uh, age welcome to the sandale podcast Thank you, thank you, Oliver. Um, Pleased to. So, you're retired officially, but it seems as if you're working more, or at least as much as maybe as you did when you weren't an Emirates professor. Is that is that for? I know you have a a book coming out shortly, and I know you've already authored a number of books. So, um, I, I don't know whether retirement's the right word to describe. Is it? Uh, probably not. No. Um, the big advantage of this is that I can do what I want to do. Um, well, when you're working, you have to do a lot of other things as well, go to meetings and um, a lot of admin and reporting on uh, on, on your teaching and, and your research and so on. Um, so I can probably be more productive, in fact, but I don't have to do all of that, which, which is which is good. And um, the other thing is that really um, I, I'd always been interested in... Um, in, in what is happening now in, in, in the world of conversational AI. That's that's what I've done for years. And it suddenly took off after I retired. <laughs> and uh, my, my colleagues uh, brought me back to, to help out in projects and PhDs and, and so on, really. So um, uh, I didn't design it that way, but uh, it, it's worked out that way, and I, I've had a great time. Yeah, I mean, it, it's obviously... I wouldn't say a new fad, certainly not in your world, because I know going back to the mid-noughties, I guess, I think you had a book in 2004 around conversational user interface. Is that right? So you have, mm, been, yeah, in, you yeah. have been in this space for the best part of two decades at this stage? Well, well, yes. I mean, originally I was interested in conversation, but not with computers at the time. Um my PhD and then my first book was about um, children, young children learning to uh, converse with each other. Mm-hmm. Most of the work at that time had been on um, on their grammar and their phonology, and and um, and, that, and that was it then, pretty much. And I was interested in how they might talk to each other. So what I did, I did a lot of uh, recording of it was my own daughter and her friend mm-hmm. between the age of three and a half and five. Um, now, we didn't have the equipment that um, people have nowadays, but um, anyway, I, I did a lot of recording, transcribed it, and looked at how they actually seemed to do various things in conversation, like asking for something, and then if the other turned it down, how they would respond. So um, I, I developed a whole sort of view of conversation, and then later uh, I was working with um, 
a young child who had difficulties in conversation. His um, syntax and, and pronunciation was all okay, but he had what we now call semantic pragmatic disorder. Mm-hmm. And that led me then to look at uh, artificial intelligence and the work that was going on at that time. But that's actually back in the 80s, 1980s, and I wrote a book then um, called The Articulate Computer, which um, described the work that was going on at that time. So there's quite a long history, really. Yeah, I mean, you have certainly been in the field, and um, I think you were in, was it Munich last week um, at, a, at one of the companies? Do you want to sort of, I guess, bring us right up to date? I think you were at the Conversation AI and Customer Experience Summit in Munich. Uh, was that last week? Yes. Um, obviously, there's, yes. I mean, this space is moving at a, a rate of knots that something changes every week. If it's not the CEO of OpenAI or Qstar, there's, there's, there's some breaking news pretty much every week. Um, do, do you want to, I suppose, give us a little synopsis of that? Because, um, as I said, there's probably a few things that have popped up there that may be of interest to our our audience. Yeah, yes, indeed. That, that was a conference organized by a company called Altrusia. Um, uh, I was there a year ago in Munich as well. And, um, and then, in fact, in Kuala Lumpur in, in June, they had an Asian version and they plan one next April in India. So last week was very interesting because of all these new developments. Um, in fact, uh, from the time that we submitted our slides just over a week ago uh, until we actually delivered the slides, uh, there was all this uh, upheaval at OpenAI. Um, people come in and going, and um, and uh, but then not only that, there was um, the launch of Claude Two from mm-hmm. Anthropic, which um, brought a lot of technical advance as well. So um, there was a lot of discussion around these things, but the conference focused pre- predominantly on customer experience. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the people were working in companies where they had contact centers and. Um, they were talking about the impact now on these of, of these new technologies on, on their work. Um, so previously, people had uh, used the um, conventional um, tools, um, Dialogflow, um, mm-hmm. Raza, and, and, and so on. Um, and um, the question was whether they should then um, incorporate LLMs, mm-hmm. large language models, in, into their, their workflow. Uh, and so some people were very enthusiastic about that um, because they saw the advantage of having less um, inflexibility. Mm. Um, if, if you actually just predefine a dialogue, then it has to go that route yeah. or else it simply just breaks down um, or even the understanding of, of the user input. The, the conventional idea is to define intents and then the the, the sorts of sentences that will map onto those intents. But you can always have missing ones or ones that somebody says something that that it doesn't actually work and you can't classify um, what they say into an intent. But with a large language model, you can get uh, understanding and, and a response. Mm-hmm. So there were a lot of positive things. Well, then, on the other hand, people were looking at some of the other problems as well, like uh, whether it would generate... Um, false information, mm-hmm. what we call hallucination, um, or whether it might um, violate company re- regulations, for example, and then or maybe uh, disclose things that it oughtn't to mm-hmm. disclose to the general public, uh, and, and various sort of ethical things as well. So um, th- there was a lot of debate, and um, th- there were one or two very good talks about um, humanitarian aspects of, of the new technologies as well. Um, some of the, uh, the speakers were emphasizing um, that aspect that you have to have the human in the loop somewhere. Yeah. So all in all, it was a very good conference. I think the only problem is that it doesn't get available to the general public in the end. Um, the attendees will get the videos and the slides, but um, otherwise it doesn't really get publicized yeah. the way an academic conference would um would have proceedings because actually, well, what what we had was really very very useful, and um, um, but there we are. Yeah, and, and as you said, I mean the, the you know the fact that you you've had to change your slides or they were changing daily um, up until the, the conference. It shows you uh, not all about the technology necessarily, but it shows you the rate of change and uncertainty 
that's happening in this space. Um, and just, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, companies using large language models, and it is obviously very much in vogue, or at least the thought process. I'm not entirely sure how many are actually, um, and, you know, we, we're involved in some of this ourselves, how many companies are actually using them in real live production use. There's a lot of pilots and proof of concepts. And I think the big concern thus far, and you mentioned there, is the the hallucination. So how realistic is it and how aligned to the company data or the, the company um, elements that, that are, are, are really relevant, particularly in customer experience. I mean, what, what do you see is happening in that field? I know there are a couple of approaches around trying to to address that, or do you see much development in that space? Well, uh, first of all, the, the tools that I mentioned are all um, revamping now to incorporate uh, LLMs. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can have, uh, I mean, Google, for example, uh, have a hybrid approach where you could use uh, the more conventional intent-based uh, approach for um, um, more constrained interactions that, that really are what we call deterministic, mm-hmm. so um, where there's not really much uh, variation. But then um, you can use perhaps where something isn't understood instead of just having a fallback like, I don't understand what you said, please say it again, which leads to an infinite loop. Yep. Um, we'll actually go to the LLM and get some sort of response. So so that, that was one thing. And there was a talk about the, the new platforms and how they're developing by my uh, co-author on, on the book that, that's coming out very soon. Um, well, then, uh, coming around to the idea of whether these are actually being used, um, what people were discussing was where you could augment. So uh, what's called retrieval augmented generation, mm-hmm. right, now for short, where you could um, actually not rely on the language model as such for your information. Uh, you would have your own company information that you wanted to be used. And that would be fed into the context, basically, of the of the prompt. Um, I mean, there's quite a complex process of how that's all done, where you have to embed the documents, first of all, and put them in a vector database. Mm-hmm. There was quite a lot of talk about what those are like, um, some illustrations. And then when you had an incoming query, it would not actually be trying to get information from the language model itself, but actually from your the documents in your vector database, so it would be answering things that you already had curated and, and were um, happy about. And the large language model would simply be producing the output text on, on the basis of that that, that context. Um, so there was quite a lot of talk around uh, how that could be done and where people were demonstrating a little bit uh, how they had already done that mm-hmm. to some extent. Um, so um, I, I think that that was trying to address the issue of the hallucinations as well, because mm-hmm. in that case, you were more likely to get a fairly reliable response. So uh, that was very positive, really showing the um, the positive aspects, really, of the new technologies, but how they were augmented, really, by not simply just having a sort of prompt um, response yeah. type of reaction the way the general public would have. It was much more complex than that yeah and, and i think um you know obviously when the likes of chat gbt hit the headlines which i think it's actually 12 months ago uh this month i think it was november 22 um there was certainly within the industry a lot of talk about how this was going to replace a lot of systems how easy it was going to be to develop um chatbot technology or other levels of automation but i think as the months have rolled on organizations have started to see that um, while an interface such as ChatGPT or Claude is, is, yes, from a consumer perspective, very easy to use to answer one or two sort of questions. Um, when you need to put these systems into production um, for a high volume of interactions and you need to be certain around the quality and quantity of information and guidelines, there's 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 a whole other industry now spawning up around that, which we vendors and, and I would include ourselves in that tend to actually look at. So, you know, these technologies, not only from the user perspective, but from the vendor perspective, tend to push us into other spaces that perhaps we hadn't thought about, nor did we have the 
obviously in this case the foundational model to start to leverage that but it spawns a i guess a whole new industry well well it hasn't be really um i mean the, the the basic idea that that we we thought of at first of simply just having a conversation interface which is what chat gpt and the others provide um it's okay up to a point mm. but um you know it doesn't really take you any further than than that and uh a lot of people just try to catch it out and just play around with it and um, try to see what, what, what it can't actually do. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but then what has happened is that people have looked at a different way of, of interacting where you programmatically have um, an, a, a whole sort of um, interaction beneath beneath the surface um, with, with these mechanisms like Langchain where you can be chaining together prompts but you're not really, you can't really do that with the basic interface. You're having to work from the the API and uh, are using one of these technologies like like Langchain. Um, and so there's a whole lot of um, programming can be mm-hmm. going on beneath the surface, really. There have been some very good tutorials on that. Um, um, that's the other thing that, that's been very useful. Um, except that you could take up your whole time sort of watching these things. Every day there's a new webinar comes out about some aspect of it. Um, and, uh, it's re- and and there are new articles and blogs coming out all the time. Not not in the, in the old way where we used to just have academic uh, publications that maybe took a year between authoring and getting accepted and then published. These things are coming out on a daily basis now, really. And um, um some quite erudite ones. Um, I've just come across one from Microsoft, for example, about um, what they call AGI, so not just artificial intelligence, but artificial general intelligence. And it's it's 100 pages. (laughs) So the time to sort of plod through all of these, really, you know, um, I don't know how people can keep up. I think that's one of the problems. And, and we'll come on to talk about that because I have a few questions around that. I know it's been in the in the news recently with QSTAR and AGI and how how I guess how far we're away from that. But um, you know, talking about new industries or new sub industries, should I call them spawning up? Um, prompt engineering is one of those um, that again. And I remember having this conversation on a previous podcast with um, who was it? It was Nat Walker, Natalie Walker at uh, Vodafone. And um, oh, yeah. discussing about prompt engineering, and I was recalling back maybe twenty years ago when we were doing IVRs, and um, I I know it's not technically the same, but the approach is very similar in the sense of actually understanding how to ask a question to elicit a response, um, and you or I could ask the same question in a slightly different way and get totally different responses. So. Um, while prompt engineering is a new industry, I think it, uh, you know the concepts certainly have been around for for a long time. I'm sure you've seen that because you, uh, you've been at the forefront of a lot of this spoken um, interface aspect. I mean, w- what's your view on prompt engineering and what is it learning from the past? And, and I suppose, where is it going to take us in the future? Yeah, um, well, as I think I understand you, the, the original work in IVRs was the system would... Um, would have a specially designed prompt to constrain the the input from the user, uh, partly because speech recognition wasn't really so good, nor natural language understanding. So, uh, in this case, now we're talking about the um, the input to the system mm-hmm. um, to to uh, try and uh, manipulate it in, in a certain way so that you get a certain sort of response. Um, so uh, that, that seems to be the case. I mean, prompt engineering has, has evolved and there are all these fantastic jobs at the moment for prompt engineering. Uh, at the same time, there are some people saying that it's, it's already dead and uh, it's going to be overtaken by other things. Uh, there was quite a lot at the conference about prompt engineering and, and, and the various techniques. So differentiating between a very simple prompt that you might make to the conversation interface, which which is fair enough. You can get a better response if you put in a, mm. a good uh, input, but more again programmatically. Um, and so, if you put in like several examples, like they call few shot um, prompting, um, and and you wanted to do say some sort of reasoning, um, one of the one of the very well known ones now is chain of thought uh, prompting, 
um, where you want in the, for example, to do some sort of mathematical reasoning to work out some uh, mathematical problem. Uh, and if you give it um, a few examples, it will more likely get the correct answer. And it will also explain how it actually got the answer. Um, so prompt engineering really is working along those lines, really, that um, uh, that if you design the prompt in, in a very careful sort of a way, and there are so many variations on it now. I just saw a blog yesterday, um, again, about 30 or 40 pages of a document showing all sorts of different examples of how you can design and engineer your prompts. Um, so as I say, it's a very, very interesting um, discipline at the moment. And I think people who were conversation designers uh, originally are now sort of becoming prompt engineers because that, that's the way to actually manipulate and make use of the large language models and get the sort of response you want. And um, j just your co-author, um, Marina, I think is, is coming from that prompt engineer. Just, and I, I feel like a, a talk show host here um, uh, promoting a new book launch. Um, tell, tell us a little yeah. bit about the book, uh, which is coming out. I think you said it's, it's available for pre-order in Amazon Prime at the moment, just as of this week, I believe, but coming out yeah. for a full release in February of next year. Is that right? Yeah, well, that depends on us getting it finished. As well. <laughs> um, where we have almost uh, finished now, really, and we have to deliver the final um, chapters um, next next month, just before Christmas. Um, the the publisher is A Press, and um, they have a very tight schedule because this is a very fast moving field, of course, mm -hmm. and and. Um, uh, there's no point if we take a whole year to get this out, it will all be out of date. Um, so um, Marina uh, is, is, as I say, um, she has a long background, actually. She worked originally, uh, she's from Russia uh, originally, and she worked on the team uh, that was uh, API.ai. Yes. Now, that was quite a prominent... That was the old um, dialogue flow, wasn't it? That, that well, exactly, yes. yes. Uh, some of the team then moved to Silicon Valley. Uh, I met some of them there um, uh, when I was at a conference. Um, and it became dialogue flow yes. and then was acquired by, by Google. So anyway, she worked in that team originally. Um, and then she worked in various other projects with Huawei, for example. And, um, and then more recently, she and her husband moved um, to to England, um, and and we met in fact at, at a conference last year in in London, and um, made a good contact really, and and decided we would write this book together. So the the, the sort of general background to the book was that conversation design, as we knew it in the traditional way, was obviously going to be changing, mm -hmm. and that there were great opportunities, but also challenges as well. And our, day, our idea was to write a book that would uh, discuss these. Mm -hmm. And um, so we also felt that, well, there were two aspects to the book. One was that um, people need to understand the technology um, as well as then the techniques. And, um, and so for the technology, you have the... Um, um, Things like transformers and attention and and, uh, and and so on, and then large language models. So we have a couple of chapters that describe that, um, but in hopefully a fairly non-technical language, uh, it's not possible to be just conversational about that. But <laughs> it's, it's not. Um, I've, I've, tried, I've that, tried, but it's not. It, yeah, it very quickly descends into. Uh, yeah, I know, but, but, but the aim was that. Uh, it should give people an understanding of the technology because there's a lot of things people don't understand. Uh, and uh, anyway, we, we thought this would help. Well, then the, the more uh, practical aspects, and, and those are the bits that, that Marina has, has written more, were to do with the, the whole art of, or science, whatever you want to say, of, of prompt engineering. Um, so the, there's... A couple of chapters on that, and then one on the uh, actually the development of the new platforms. Um, our dialogue flow and voice flow and so on have um, grasped the impetus really of the new technologies. Um, 
So the, that's sort of the heart of the book, really. And uh, the, then we've addressed, uh, in fact, we still have to write this. We Well, we, we talked about evaluation. That chapter is just almost finished now, really. That was quite challenging, how you evaluate the systems. And um, I wrote a bit on evaluating the performance of LLMs. Mm-hmm. And to my dismay, I, I saw a survey which uh, referenced 500 papers. <laughs> so... Um, there's really just so much coming out about this every day, really, benchmarks and so on. And and then the chapter that we still have to write is, is one on safety and ethics. Um, so, so we're coming around to that. And then we'll wrap up with the introductory chapter, which sort of starts you off at a sort of final words, which will be um, looking at what really the current state of, of the art is, really, all the new developments mm-hmm. and what we think the future will will hold. As I said earlier, the problem is, of course, the book is very static, so once it's published, um, uh, unless you some sort of website and continually update. Um, yeah, so it's our aim is to have general sort of um, information that's going to be a bit more long-lasting, yes. and um, some of the new advances are just speeding up or having um, larger token inputs and, and, and so on, really. They don't really affect the, the sort of yes. core aspects of, of, of the new developments. Yeah, I mean, obviously, you're right. I mean, a, a physical book in, in this world must be, I'm sure it must be really difficult to um, structure in the sense of what to include and what not to include, because invariably you're trying to avoid the situation of, um, you know, two weeks, two months, um, it, yeah. it, it's been surpassed by something different, something new, or it's been indeed maybe a topic that was quite top or an uh, item that was quite topical is no longer um, seen as a value, you know. So, yeah, yeah, the publisher addresses that in, in, to some extent because <clears throat> we've had to submit the uh, chapters we've written already, and they've gone through a, um, an editorial and then a technical review, and then we've had to respond to that right away. So those chapters are sort of signed and sealed, as it were. Uh, a, a bit unfortunate because it would be nice to go back and um, maybe add some things, but uh, but we have to take that on board that if they're going to produce, they don't just want the whole thing at the last minute, and then they have to go through it all, and then have it sort of author approved for any suggested changes and so on. That's the way we used to do the books, mm-hmm. really, you know. You'd submit the complete manuscript, and then it went through quite an editorial review and so on. Uh, here, it's already gone in bit by bit, really, and some of it is now out of our hands. Yeah, <laughs> but as you say, some of those elements are, you know, are, are are much more longer term. So, you know, the likes of which is obviously forefront of mind at the moment because I assume you're writing the chapters you mentioned around safety and ethical aspects. I mean, that's going to be. I would imagine a, an ongoing and long-running debate in the industry and in society as a whole as, as this technology evolves. Um, give me a little bit of insight um, without preempting what you're going to write in those chapters, but uh, yeah. what are the things that are that you see that are forefront of mind and and both from a technology and a societal perspective we need to, to take into consideration? Well, there'll be, um, for example, the, the whole aspect of your data and whether there's bias in the data so that it um, might give out biased responses. Um, so they're usually very male-oriented would be one mm-hmm. of the problems there or ethnically um, biased in, in some sort of a way. Uh, then the, the aspect of safety where you have to be careful about toxic responses, harmful responses and, and so on. But uh, I think people understand the issues there pretty much. Um, <clears throat> and what might happen in the future would be there would be better ways of safeguarding against these. So what we'll be discussing there are, first of all, the issues and explaining them, and then some of the current ways in which they've been addressed. So um, guardrails, for example, and NVIDIA have um, a whole sort of um, um, thing about guardrails, and so we'll discuss that. Mm-hmm. Um, well, then, of course, the other thing are the, the sort of regulatory things yes. um, from the EU and so on. Well, now, we can't really, we can only say what's available at the time and the sort of discussions that are ongoing. Um, so we'll mention 
we'll mention that. Um, but obviously, there'll be new things will develop over time. Mm. I don't think things and, are final there. And and you know, pick up a couple of those topics. Bias, you know. By very definition, a large language model, because what it's been trained on is, is the corpus of data that we as humans have created. Um, it, it is going to be biased. It's going to be an average as well. So how do you take that right. out of it? How do you, um, and I suppose that the secondary follow-on, which is more the ethical, who decides that? Because your ethics are different to my ethics than the next person's ethics. And, and there's, you know, ethics are, are not a, a binary. They're not you know, one or zero, they are on a continuum somewhere. So you know, mm. what's your thoughts around that? Well, of course, that's very difficult. We're talking about masses of data and for people to, to go through all of that and um, by hand um, <clears throat> or by eye, <laughs> uh, I think would be virtually impossible. Um, a rather futuristic idea is that an LLM might be able to do that. So um, <clears throat> people are talking about using LLMs to actually uh, yes. uh, look at the output of another LLM. Um, well, then some people say you're really just uh, making up your own rules. So. Correct. <laughs> so um, there's a bit of an issue over that. But, I mean, that might indeed be one way in which um, uh, this could be addressed. Um <clears throat> It is generally a, a matter of what sort of data you, you can use um, and how you can make sure that the data is much more representative. So it, it's not really uh, just bias. I mean, even language-wise as well, um, there isn't really data for a, a lot mm -hmm. of um, different um, ethnic and, and, and language groups. Yeah, um, yeah. But that's really sparsity, really, and um, it's very difficult to overcome that, really. Um, when you have what we call low resource languages and um mm. so that, i mean that's going to hit like african countries uh which have large numbers of speakers but don't actually have a, a large amount of data corpus written uh, yeah 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 so, so i mean that's always going to be a problem and and again by definition that you know there's um albeit it's quite large there's a a throttle there's a limited amount of of content that's available which is going to limit the training at some stage now I'm, it's obviously a fairly high limit in terms of these llms i mean how do you see that evolving do you see the llms or the the implementation of those then creating their own data in synthetic data so to speak and feeding that back into the model um or i mean you know what's your thoughts because again that's a little bit about uh, marking your own homework, you know, if, if it's if the underlying yeah, um, if the underlying model is incorrect and you perpetuate that by producing more incorrect or more biased or, or whatever term you want to use, then it, it could get out of control. Yeah, yeah, well, exactly. Um, I mean, people, are the, that was the thing I'd forgotten to mention about the synthetic data. And um, I mean, that, that, that's another thing people are looking at. Um, but... Um, Again, that has to be looked at very carefully because, as you say, that could actually just escalate the problem rather than uh, remedy it. Um, but then there are other different techniques of actually trying to um, discover certain things. So, I mean, like toxi toxicity, for example, if you can instruct your uh, second language model to be looking out for these things mm -hmm. and to be careful in, in what it generates, um, a lot of that was done actually with ChatGPT originally, with the um, the reinforcement learning using human feedback mm -hmm. um, as a way of um, uh, trying to uh, reduce the the levels of um, of harmful outputs. Um, so again, I suppose a secondary LLM could be set up really with with that in mind, and mm -hmm. maybe even a third one, and and they could compete against each other, and um, and and. I mean, who do you see being responsible? I'm going to lead, lead on to another question around research in this area. I mean, who do you see being responsible for this? Is it the the tech companies? Is it um, government or government institutions? Is it research? And, and the follow-on I'm going to ask more about is, you know, where you see research, the university research I'm particularly talking about going, given the amount of money that the large techs, you know, whatever, Google or, sorry, Microsoft have, 10 something or 12 billion invested in pretty much i know it's hardware and whatever but a lot of it into r d um so mm -hmm. i suppose the first part of the question you know who is responsible for 
these safeguards, not just legislating, but you know, actually implementing and ensuring that you know we are using LLMs to check that they're right, that they're ethical, etc. Well, uh, I suppose the, the companies that are producing them are responsible in, in, in that sense. I mean, in, in other domains, they, they wouldn't uh, produce things that are going to cause harm. True. You know, if you have um, um, whatever sort of a system, like a browser or an email system or whatever, uh, you would want it to work correctly, so it's up to them. But, um, I mean, that's maybe been a bit optimistic about things, so I think then governments have to then um, devise regulations like GDPR and uh, and so on, for um, both for the, the actual uh, technical producers of and then also the users of, of the systems. I mean, we've had that a lot in some of the projects where we have to be careful about privacy and uh, data protection and, and, and so on and um, ethical use. Um, the, that's very important. And, and for us, the universities will Im- impose those sort of restrictions. We have ethical boards and, and so on. Um, then the, the second part of what you were saying, um, I'm trying now to remember, can you remind me? Um, it was more around then you know, the, the role for research in this area, no, not just about the ethics, but oh, yeah. in, in general, because, I mean, you're coming from a, a university background, a deep research background, you've been involved in this. Um, yes, you, you've authored books, but a lot of it has been in the research area. H- how do you see that? Because I said the, the amount of money being invested in this, in research and R&D, is, is huge mm. by these large corporations, and indeed, you know, not just the large corporations. How do you see that impacting research at a university level where a lot of, you know, a lot of the initial concepts and ideas typically come from, not necessarily from, from industry as a combination, but how do you see that impacting, you know, what, what the classical research yeah. in the university has been? Yeah, well, I think it has become very critical for universities, um, well, particularly in, in this area in computer science and uh, artificial intelligence. Um, that um, the large industries are doing this sort of work. Now, when I first started, that wasn't the case. So, um, and then we didn't have all this technology, so we could just go ahead and, and mm. get on with it. But uh, we can't really uh, influence things at the level of um, building these large language models. <clears throat> we don't have the capacity and we don't have access to the computers and, and um, uh well, we don't have the money. Um, it's vast amounts of money that are involved in training and, and running them. So we have to do something secondary then from that. And um, um, in some cases, we can do evaluations of things. Um, mm-hmm. uh, there's ways of doing that. There is, of course, open source um, oh, well, I software. Gonna, I was going to come on to that, which we will in a minute too, yeah. Yeah. Um, we have look more at applications of the technology at, at Ulster University. So um, uh, some of the projects have been in, in applied areas like uh, mental health support. And so are these technologies going to be useful? Um, there's um, a shortage of um, counsellors and um, um, doctors and, 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 and so on. And there's some way we can actually contribute to that by by automating some of the processes. Um, well, there's uh, the same as in contact centers um, for customer service where it's difficult to get people and um, and you can actually automate a lot of the processes um, using these technologies. So um, we, we've had projects on doing that. So we're not really contributing to the actual um, uh, basic technology. We're not developing foundation models or anything like that but we're making use of the technologies in, in these um, socially relevant applications. Uh, there are still people who would be looking at, at some of the technical aspects of deep learning, for example. And um, but as I say, we can't actually do very much in, in that area of mm. um, actually developing those, those systems. I mean, it, you're right. It's hard to compete with the, you know, the amounts of, of money that are being, um, which which is ho- hopefully good for us all, but um, you mentioned open source and, and open foundational models. I was actually reading a paper. Um, I don't think it was it was. 
I think, funded by Meta um, just last month. I don't know if you've seen it, about the economic um, opportunities for open foundation models in Europe. Um, now, obviously, no, I'll, I'll, send no. it, I'll send it on to you, but um, it, you, it, yeah. it's, it's um, I mean, obviously, Meta are, have been very much at the forefront of the open source movement and they've been publishing their models and um, I think you know that scenario that's probably and and the open foundational models open source is starting to get a lot of traction um, and I think that's yeah. opening it up to, to like the universities are, are indeed a lot of smaller uh, innovative tech companies who like you said before don't have the money to to train a large foundational model but if, if the underlying um, core is there then to start to leverage and build off it well well yes indeed um i haven't had the the <clears throat> time to look at that well uh, once we finish the book um, i'm hoping to to start delving into hugging face for example yeah. and um i've got a book uh, that i haven't opened yet <laughs> uh, uh, that explains um all their technology and um how to use it um so um I'm hoping when I get the time, I'll be able to take it into that more. And um, so, so there's that on the one hand, and um, there's some very good people working in in, um, in Hugging Face and Cohere and, and some of the others. Um, so there are those opportunities. And of course, there's the idea of um, smaller models. Um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> uh, people seem to be saying now that it's not necessarily the case that the larger the model, the better they performance yeah. is going to be the whole debate about scaling up and and that's very sort of technical work on on, on scaling up and investigating uh, to what extent that actually is is the way to go and of course there have been these distilled models that are, that are much reduced then and uh, uh, require less capacity um i also was um it was mentioned to me, but again, I haven't had time to look. There's um, a system called ChatGPT for All, which allows you to download to your own um, system, your, your your own computer, um, the 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 basics really, and, and then you can run models um, uh, on your own. Again, when I get time, I'm going to have a look at that. Um, so there are different possibilities, and uh, certainly we we can in the universities. Um, work in that way um, and, and uh, then make a contribution. And then of course, in some cases, if you're particularly good, you might get invited to work with some of the companies. Um, that probably won't be happening to me now, but. Um, well, uh, you, 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 you never know, Mike. I think, I think you're, um, the, the certain question about being good is not, doesn't need an answer. Um, I suppose <laughs> it's whether you could fit the time in or not. That's a, the more fundamental question. Um, but well, I, well, yeah. And um, no, I, and I think yes, the you know I, I do see the foundational models, the open source foundational models, um, and they're certainly over the last couple of months getting a lot more traction. And um, I suppose the analogy of also, and I've seen something with the CEO of Hugging Face published recently. His as we're into that time of year now, where the project uh, predictions for twenty twenty four are starting to come out. One of his predictions yeah. was, was that a, a high profile. AI vendor would go bust in 2024. Uh, he didn't say which one he expected it to be. Um, but uh, given the amount of investment that, and the amount of uh, losses some of these companies are racking up in the near term and, mm -hmm. and maybe the long term, that's that's probably a good shout. And uh, it, it kind of reminds me of the of the um, the smartphone era. You know, the first to market mm -hmm. as ChatGPT really has been isn't always the one that is that it's best nor nor lasts last the uh the test of time if we we think back to the blackberry which in the early days of smartphones was probably mm -hmm. a preeminent device and um met uh met its demise again because of you know competitors uh new innovations um and the constant requirement for innovation um mm -hmm. and, and i i think to me that's where the likes of these open uh open source open foundational type models are are going to be really interesting because they will open up, you know, a lot more to to smaller organisations, to uh, academia, to actually build and research without having the the level of investment required to train their own large language models. And I, I think that's definitely going to be an mm. area for twenty twenty four that 
that lots of people are, are looking forward to and, and I know from our own perspective it's an area that we're starting to look into in, in, in more detail. Well, indeed, yeah. I mean, uh, I wouldn't like to predict which one is going to fall. And, uh, <laughs> but, um, I mean, there were signs that things could have got difficult in, in one particular case. And, uh, um, I mean, the, the biggies like uh, Google and Microsoft and so on, um, I think are going to be okay. But um, even there, I think um, Google felt that they were under quite a threat, really. There's a whole sort of search. Uh, Absolutely. Was, 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 was the thing that they were particularly worried about and, um, and and there's lots of others. And then if you go to the sort of second layer, the, the companies that um, produce the tools and so on, um, there, there are lots and lots of those that uh, produce conversational systems or chatbots. Mm-hmm. Um, and you sort of wonder, well, uh, will they be able all to compete in, in this market? And, and if they haven't the resource to keep up, and, and revamp and, and, and so on the way some of them have been able to do, will they then fall by the wayside? Um, you know, I, that's going to be it. It, it invariably will. And, you know, uh, my lack of hair has shown that I've been around this industry and the tech for nigh on 30 plus years now. And I think you see these cycles coming up with, with any technology and new technology. There's a spurt of innovation. There's a spurt of company startup. Then there's... M&A, there's consolidation, some fall by the wayside, and then the cycle starts again. Mm-hmm. Now, I, I know in this particular space, this is probably one of the more disruptive technologies that has come to the fore in, in certain recent times. Um, mm-hmm. But I think the you know the evolution of that is going to follow the same sort of cycle. As I said, there'll be a spurt of innovations. Um, you know, if we take back to the dot-com era, if, if, if any of our listeners do remember that, if they're old enough, they will. Um, lots, of, yeah. lots of them may not, but there was a huge amount of companies popping up around websites and web applications and e-commerce as it was then, which wasn't really e-commerce. Mm. It was a website with a couple of boxes on it. Um, but a lot of that consolidation, but a lot of the concepts that maybe were built by those companies got rolled into other concepts and, and ultimately where that industry is today is significantly different, so... I think you'll see a same evolution. Oh, yeah. Yeah, indeed. I mean, people talk about conversational commerce now, and um, yes. everything has to be conversational. And and and, and as you say, the, these companies spring up and um, they're, they're all competing with each other. Even at the level of these conferences that, that I would go to now, I tend not to be at academic conferences quite so much because there you have to have a project with full evaluation and, and so on. I am actually next week going to the Irish AI conference. Um, it's it's going to be held in, in Letterkenny, um, but in conjunction with uh, Ulster University at um, McGee, uh, uh-huh. Derry Laboratory campus. Um, and and uh, I'm, I'm sure there'll be some interesting uh, talks there um, uh, along these lines. Um, but but uh, as you say, th- things have moved on so much really, and. Um, it, it is going to be difficult for these smaller companies and then these conference organizers. Um, there's quite a competition really at the moment between them to to attract um, you know people like yourself in, in uh, relevant companies. Um, the, there had been um, well, well uh, these are almost popping up every few months. These conferences now you know they're getting in some cases the same sponsors, but now the sponsors. Are finding it difficult to actually subsidise every one of these conferences, and, and so it's it's becoming quite a thing even at that level. And um, and I'm conscious of probably time, but a couple of things before we we wrap. You mentioned the paper, I think you said Microsoft uh, released um, uh, recently around uh, general AI, and I know again with the with the um, with the the past week of. Uh, shenanigans is the word I would use if anybody understands what that is the, the comings and goings within one large corporation there was there was uh there's been a lot of debate about Q star which is this concept of how far we are away from general AI what do you think or what do you see in that space and you know how realistic it is to move from generative AI which is really what the large language modules can produce mm-hmm. at the moment to a more general AI yeah the, the trouble with AI is <clears throat> trying to define what intelligence actually is. I mean, this goes back a long, long way. 
And uh, people used to say, as soon as we found a solution in AI, then it's not intelligent anymore. That's just... <laughs> um, but people seem to be looking at things like reasoning and um, planning. Um, planning is actually a key aspect of, of uh, QSTAR that, that, that you mentioned. Um, um, Jan LeCun uh, just said something fairly recently. I don't know if you saw that. Um, no. You know the way the LLMs will, will generate? Um, it's called autoregressive generation. Mm -hmm. So they, given the, the previous words or the, or the context that they're given, they'll generate the, the next most probable word. And then they keep on doing that. Mm -hmm. It sort of seems remarkable, actually, that that's the way they produce this uh, really fluent and fantastic output. But he's actually saying he doesn't think that's the way forward. Um, and he thinks that um, some degree of planning comes into it. Now, I haven't looked into what he means by that. Um, there was a lot of work in, in symbolic uh, representation on planning way, way back in the 80s. And there's still some people doing that sort of work. But whether it's more um, based on um, training with neural networks, I, I don't know. But um, people are talking about agents, um, uh, you know, which would be intelligent agents that can actually perform a task for you. So they're not just giving a response anymore, but you're asking them maybe to, to plan a trip. Um, you, you're going mm -hmm. somewhere on a trip and they'll actually uh, do the whole process for you. Um, they obviously would have been trained in some way on on, on the elements of doing that. Um, so that seems to be what people are getting at. That if you have that degree of intelligence, then you're getting more towards towards general intelligence to be able to reason and, and predict and, and plan around all these different phenomena. Yeah. Um, indeed, and I think that's a perfect point just to uh, to conclude the conversation because I'm I'm conscious I've usurped your morning uh, when you have still a couple of chapters of a, of a book to finish before your, your, your Christmas feast. And um, you mentioned the word there about using prediction in generative AI. I think the one prediction I have is that everything is going to change in the next month or in the next six months. And, and I guess, Hello. and I guess this time next year, we maybe we'll do another podcast and you probably will have another book coming out um, to talk of some, some innovation or change in the field. Yes, indeed. Well, uh, that's the time passed so quickly. I didn't notice actually. I've just looked at my uh, uh, Echo show here, and I can see the time. So that's um, been very enjoyable. Mike, listen, thank you very much for your time. I really appreciate it taking it out of your your busy your busy day. As I said, you have many things to complete before Christmas. Good luck with finishing off the book or the final few chapters. I look forward to reading it in early twenty twenty four. And um, uh, all the best, and thank you again. Well, thank you, Oliver. It's been a pleasure.